is that the Bible is saying, you know, sometimes you feel like I'm just I'm just going to use the Bible and, and that is great, and it's, uh, it's awesome, but there's these tools out there, there's these really brilliant people writing these books that help us to get that deeper, that background knowledge that we might not be able to get from our own reading of the scripture alone. So I w encourage you to use resources, use secondary resources uh, in your Bible study, and it's just going to deepen and grow your own personal study. So this morning, we're going to start in session number one. We're going to be talking about the intertestamental period and the synoptic gospels. I'm going to be starting off for, for about 15 or 20 minutes talking about the intertestamental period, and then I'll be handing it over to Graham. Uh, later on, we'll be talking about the, the rest of the epistles of Paul and the epistles of John and Peter and the book of Acts. Uh, so we have a lot of exciting stuff to talk about and get through today. So it's going to be, it's going to feel quick, but it's going to be, it's going to be really good, I believe. So let's just pray, and then we're going to jump into the intertestamental period. So, Father God, we just are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for you and the all that you have given us. And we just look forward to growing in our knowledge of you this morning and just diving deeper into your word. And we just pray that you would just bless our hearts and our minds as we receive what you have for us this morning, Father. And we just look forward to what you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the intertestamental period uh, is the period from, the, uh, the, from Micah, the very last book of the Old Testament, all the way through to the beginning of the New Testament. And though that time period is about 400 years, and it's some call it the 400 years of silence. And even though God was silent during that time, meaning that there were no prophets in Israel, there was no revelation from God, we can see God moving and preparing and continuing to do a work in the world and preparing a time for the birth of Jesus to come. In Galatians 4.4, Paul says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son. And so we can see, as we delve into the intertestamental period, we can see that this is not just some uh, arbitrary time that God has chosen just to kind of throw his son down there. It's not that he's just like, oh, I'm kind of bored today. Why don't we have Jesus born? But he's preparing uh, a time, and he's preparing these uh, factors in these situations so that when Jesus does come, it is at the, the appropriate and the proper time. So, when we, when we left off last week, we were talking about how the Israelites had returned from captivity in Babylon. Uh, the Persian Empire had taken over. But through the intertestamental period, we see that the Persian Empire falls, and the Greek Empire, led by Alexander the Great, comes into power on the scene. And during this period of history, as Alexander takes over the, the known world. His empire spreads from Greece all the way over to India and down into Egypt. He not only spreads the, his empire, the Greek empire, but also the Greek language spreads throughout this region as the lingua franca, or the common trade language of the people. And never, never before had this entire region been unified with a, with a common language. And this is incredibly significant for the spread of the gospel, especially as we get into the time of Acts and the time of 
the missionaries like Paul and Barnabas and Peter, as they spread throughout the known world, they're able to communicate in a common language. And this happens hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. So we can see the Father setting things up and preparing a way for the coming of Jesus and for the spread of the gospel. Now, after Alexander's death, his kingdom, or the empire, is divided up into four different generals. And two of them uh, kind of play a significant role in uh, uh, court concerning Palestine. And after his death, there's the, the Ptolemies that uh, control Egypt, and they are south of Israel, or Judah. And there are the Seleucids, who control Syria, which is kind of the north and the east side of, of Judah. And from 320 B.C. to 198 B.C., we see the Ptolemies rule. And they are very open, and these are good years for the Jews. The faith of the Jewish people is permitted. It's even encouraged. And during this period of time, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Bible, which becomes incredibly significant later on, is actually created by these 72 or 70 Hebrew writers down in Egypt. They write, they write the, Greek, the Greek New Testament, or excuse me, the Greek scriptures. Um, and the reason that they were doing this is because the lingua franca, or the Greek language, had spread so thoroughly throughout the, the empire that many Hebrew people could no longer read Hebrew. And so they were forced to, or they had to translate the scripture into Greek so that Hebrew people could continue to read their scriptures. So things are going well under the rule of the Ptolemies, but then in 198 BC, the Seleucids, they come down and they conquer Palestine. Now the Seleucids, they were, um, their desire was to make Jerusalem into a, a Greek city, you know, including acceptance of the Greek dress and the Greek language and the names and the Greek morality. And the Jewish people here in Jerusalem, they are not okay with this. They, um, uh, they will not go along with the, the Greek morality. And so the Jews revolt against this Hellenization, and the practice of Judaism actually becomes a capital offense um, in the land of, of Judea. And so, luckily, the, the Jewish people are impossible to stamp out. So they decide that they are going to revolt uh, against the— uh, who are these— Man, I'm sorry, I got distracted there. They are going to revolt against the Seleucids. And so a resistance movement springs up, led by this guy named Mattathias and his five sons. And this is—these guys are the Hasmoneans. And they're also known by their nickname, the Maccabees. Some of you may have heard of First and Second Maccabees. Uh, that, that's the story of this time, the revolt of these Jewish people against the Syrians and against the, the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews that were just kind of going along with what the, the Syrians or the Seleucids wanted to do. And eventually, the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, they take back the priesthood, they purify the temple, which had been desecrated by the Syrians, and they begin to rebuild Jerusalem. And they have uh, is a relatively independent uh, rule for about 100 years. And, but by the time Jesus is born, the power has passed away from the Jewish rule there in Palestine, and it has passed into the hands of the Roman Empire. And we see in 63 BC, this guy by the name of Pompey uh, invades Palestine and, for, and takes the entire region for Rome. 
And when, they, when he comes in, they take over. Rome puts this guy named Herod the Great, uh, and he becomes the king of the Jews. And this Herod is the one that we know about, that when Jesus was born, he had all the babies killed because he wanted to get rid of any chance for this Christ child to be born that would threaten his power. And Herod the Great's sons, they are the adult Herods that we see throughout the Gospels. And so now we're getting closer and closer to the, the arrival of Jesus. And so during this time uh, for fighting for their faith, the Jews are sitting there and they're waiting and ready for the promised Messiah to come and for the, because they have lost their, um, their own rule. They are not in charge of themselves. They're now being oppressed by these Romans and they're waiting for the promised Messiah to come and to bring them peace. And so before I hand it over to Graham, I just want to talk about some of the factions, some of the, the different uh, people that we'll see throughout the Gospels and we see through the New Testament. Um, first, we're gonna, there's the, the Sadducees, and these guys are associated with the priesthood. They are kind of the, the guys that are politically oriented. They're Jewish people that work with the, the ruling government, and they— uh, they doubted the supernatural. They didn't believe in personal immortality. They didn't believe in angels and demons. Uh, and they worked with Rome and Herod to preserve their own status and their own power. Then we have their, their kind of religious opponents, which would have been the Pharisees that we've all heard about. Uh, Jesus has some run-ins with Pharisees throughout his, his ministry. And the Pharisees, they did believe in the supernatural. They did believe in angels and demons, and they expected a bodily resurrection. And we see the Sadducees and the Pharisees kind of get into it, especially in the book of Acts, kind of regarding this, uh, this belief. You know, is there a resurrection or is there not a resurrection? The Pharisees, they, they highly valued Scripture, and they believed that God wanted his people to carefully keep every small detail of the law. I think the Pharisees, you know, they kind of looked back at the history of Israel, and they saw, man, every time we stop doing what God tells us to do, we just get crushed. So I think what we should do instead is be incredibly meticulous to follow every little law. And they didn't even, they didn't follow just the, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament that we talked about last week, but they also followed all of the, the oral law that had been passed down from, you know, rabbi to rabbi, to, from priest to priest, ever since the time of Moses. So they had tons of little details and laws that they tried to follow, and they got really intense about it. And this focus to ob obeying the law, it blinded them to the grace and the mercy that we saw throughout the Old Testament. You know, we can, you know, sometimes when we look back at the Old Testament, we can see this God who is kind of angry, and he crushed people, and he destroyed people. And if we kind of step back, we see the actual pictures of a God who is loving and continually trying to draw his people back into relationship with him, continually offering grace and mercy to his people. And yet the Pharisees, just like us, can get kind of blinded to that and just be like, you know, we want to work our way into righteousness. And if we do the right things and we keep our focus on these little, these little laws and these little decisions, then God is going to bless us. And so that was what they were all about. There's a group called the Zealots. Is that up there? The Zealots, um, and this was a terrorist group that, that they wanted to overthrow Rome. They were ready to—they were, 
they're not necessarily going to wait for the Messiah to come to overthrow Rome. They were going to do it themselves. And we see even one of Jesus' disciples, Simon, was called a zealot. So he was apparently associated with this group in some way. Then there's uh, a group called the Essenes, or the Essenes. Uh, these guys aren't mentioned in the New Testament, but they are another group of Jewish people. And what they decided to do is instead of like the zealots kind of revolting against Rome, they just kind of retreated into their own little communities out in the desert and just were very ascetic and very kind of focused on following the Jewish uh, law, and they were just waiting for the Messiah to come. Their idea was just, we're going to get away from the culture, we're going to step away from the world and just wait for, Je or wait for the Messiah. And the last group is the majority of the people. These the Sadducees, Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes, they are, you know, a, a small fraction of, of the Jewish people. A vast majority are just the common people that are just going about their lives, doing the best they can, trying to survive. They would participate in the sacrifices of the temple, and they would go to the synagogues, um, but their beliefs were probably closest to that of the Pharisees. And so that is just kind of a big picture of where the world is at, where things are at when Jesus comes on the scene at about 4 or 5 B.C. So with that, we're going to turn it over to Grim. All right. Well, thanks, Mark. Um, understanding the, what we call the intertestamental period <coughs> me, is, um, is really important um, as a background for the arrival of Jesus and helps us to understand in the gospel stories in particular when Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and you hear these terms of the Sadducees and, and you're wondering why, why are these people so upset with Jesus? Why, what is causing them to um, question what Jesus is doing? Um, you gain a little bit more insight as to why that's happening. Um, the other, uh, the other thing that is important to know is, and you got a sense of that from what Mark just shared, is this was a time of instability where, uh, you know, empire would take over and rule for for a period of time, and then another empire would come in, and uh, this was a period uh, of change, and this was a period where lots of different things were happening in the region, and uh, it was hugely. Um, crushing for the Roman Empire to come in and to take over the territory of Judea. For the Jews, that was such a crushing blow because they had been ruling themselves and they were so, you know, just believed that that was their destiny, that, that they would be able to live and to, to live under, you know, God's rule in the land of Judea, the land that, remember, was promised to them. This is the land that we talked about last week that was promised to Abraham, that, that multiple you know, uh, centuries later, we're still uh, seeing these uh, these arguments over and the territory and the battles that are happening for this piece of territory. And um, and so the Jews really wanted to throw off this Roman rule because they believed it was not divinely appointed. They believed that ultimately their destiny was to, to live in this land in freedom. And so when they were expecting the Messiah to come, they, they expected the Messiah to come because they were reading their Old Testament and they knew that there would be one that would come who would save his people and save them from oppression. And um, they read all of these passages and so they were expecting the Messiah to come. They were expectant. And uh, the word Messiah just means the one who saves. It comes from the Hebrew root for, for sa to save or savior. And so they knew that this person was going to come. And maybe one way to think about it is they, were, um, they believed that they were kind of in bondage to the Romans and they wanted a liberator to come and to free them. And so uh, they, in their minds, had decided that that would be somebody who would be a political 
force or a military messiah. And so uh, one of the, th the other tensions you see in the gospel stories that we'll get into in just a moment is um, when Jesus came and said that he was actually a servant instead of a great military ruler, that greatly confused the Jews because they it was so completely different than what their expectations had been up to that point. And so Jesus, throughout his ministry, is helping the Jews to reread their own scriptures and to see that um, he actually did fulfill everything that they had been longing for and fulfill it in a way that was completely above and beyond anything that they had actually hoped for, which is pretty incredible. So the New Testament opens, as you all probably know, with um, four Gospels, and the word Gospel means good news. And um, in these four Gospels, it's four accounts of the one story of Jesus' life. And so I put up there one story, four approaches. And one question that you might have at the start is, why is there four versions of the story of Jesus' life? Why is there not just one authoritative, unified, single story of the life of Jesus? And maybe you've not asked that question before, but it's a good question to ask, I think, because um, for many of us, it might be a little easier if there was just one story of Jesus' life, if there was just one account. And there's probably lots and lots of reas good reasons why there's four versions of the story of Jesus' life. But I think one that becomes obvious as you go through the four Gospels is uh, that they're written from different perspectives. For example, Matthew's Gospel is written to a very Jewish perspective. It's written to a, an audience or, or readers that are very steeped in the Jewish traditions. And so if you were a Greek person or a Roman person reading Matthew's Gospel, you might get really turned off by the fact that it's so thoroughly Jewish in the way it approaches the life of Jesus. And you might find it very difficult to understand what Matthew's talking about at certain times, and you might, you know, the, the, the Greeks and the Romans, they, they thought Judaism, they thought it was such a backward religion, and they didn't understand it. And so, you know, to, for them to read this, this one story of Jesus' life, if it's really so thoroughly Jewish, they might, might never have, re you know, received and responded to that story. You fast forward to, you know, John's gospel is, is really different and, and it's in its feel and its flavor. We're going to talk about John's gospel in the next session. But um, again, just it's a different approach and it reaches a different audience. You compare the start of Matthew's gospel that has a genealogy that, that goes right back to into the Old Testament. Compare that with John's gospel that starts with this very philosophical understanding of Jesus. In the beginning was the word, was the logos, and the logos was what, you know, it's such a, such a different feel. So I think that that's one answer to that question of why are there four Gospels, is that there's different approaches and different things that are emphasized in the life of Jesus that give us a greater uh, breadth of understanding about who he is and how we relate him to different types of people. And I think the second thing is, is, a, is a, another main reason is that um, it was very common um, in, in the time of Jesus, as it is today, if you are a major, a major figure in history to have more than one story written about you, to have more than one biography written about you. And so we all, um, you know, maybe you've seen the recent movie Lincoln, but I mean, how many biographies are there of, of Lincoln, you know, and now we have this, this movie that's very current. And it's just that same idea where um, people are reflecting back on the life of this figure and what that person means to them and what they're hearing about that person. And, um, and then they're capturing all of those um, stories and thoughts and ideas and putting it into a uh, written form. And that's essentially what we have uh, in the Gospels. So what we're going to look at in this session is uh, 
or what called water called the synoptic gospels and you may may or may not have heard that term before but synoptic gospels refers to the first three gospels uh, Matthew Mark and Luke and it purposefully doesn't include John and that's not because John's gospel is any less than the other three but John takes such a different approach and how he tells the story of Jesus and he he ends up highlighting um, all sorts of different events that the others don't really touch on um, that his gospel is kind of for for scholarly purposes and for a lot of different purposes is is treated more as a standalone gospel story and Matthew Mark and Luke uh, share a lot of the same content they share a lot of the same stories about Jesus and so because they're much more closely aligned in terms of their content and what they present about Jesus um, they're they're called the synoptics and the word synoptic you know that term just really means uh, seeing together so it's kind of when you put them all together you see this bigger picture of who Jesus is and together they kind of uh, work um, to really uh, you know interplay off of each other and we'll get, we'll get into that in, in just a moment but um, that's what the term synoptic gospels mean if you ever hear that term or if you're wondering what that means Uh, Bible scholars also really, as they get into um, the New Testament study, they have to make some decisions about uh, when different um, books of the Bible uh, were written and who wrote them and where was that person when they wrote them. And it, it would be wonderful for us to say, we know with absolute 100% certainty when every single book of the New Testament was written, who wrote it and where they were writing it from. But unfortunately, our standards of history are not quite the same standards of history that existed in this time period in this part of the world. Now, that's not to say that these are historically unreliable. They're incredibly um, historically reliable and verified by lots of different measures. But the way that they recorded history was, was different. Um, you know, if they're they didn't update their Wikipedia page to uh, let us know exactly when they were born and where, and there was no picture, and, and we just don't have that, that feel. And so there's a little bit of discussion as to when exactly these were written and where and all of that, but we have a pretty accurate idea. But one thing when it comes to these synoptic gospels is trying to decide which one came first, especially because they're all so similar in many ways. You're trying to decide, well, in what order did they come? And it's at this point, probably the most common uh, view is that Mark's gospel came first. And so Mark's gospel is the one we'll look at uh, first whenever we do go through them in order. But Mark's gospel is the shortest of, of the four gospels, uh, shortest uh, that we have, and it's also considered to be the first. And what's commonly thought is that um, Mark's gospel was used as a source document for both Matthew and Luke because there's so much that's in Mark that you see reflected in both Matthew and Luke's gospel. But there's also these other stories that aren't in Mark's gospel that appear in Matthew and Luke. And so scholars have always tried to figure out where did these other stories come from because they're in both Matthew and Luke, but they're not in Mark. And so they've come up with a theory that there was this other unknown document that has been lost to history that we don't have anymore, but was used as a, as a source document. And so that document in, in Bible um, study is just called Q. And so... It's kind of a mysterious name, but that's what it's called. So uh, essentially what they say is Mark came first. It's shorter. There was another document that we call Q, and uh, Matthew and Luke used Mark and Q, and that's how they came up with more of the material that they needed. Does that make sense? No. Oh, well. So 
so we're actually going to run into this in a, in a couple of different spots. Um, a little bit later um, in the last session, we're going to look at um, First and Second Corinthians. And uh, we're going to learn that First and Second Corinthians are, are two of four letters that were actually sent to the Corinthian church. And those other two we don't have either. Uh, they're lost to history. And so this is, a, this is just something that happened at the time. Uh, you would make reference to other documents that we don't have any longer. And that's not to say that our gospel story is lacking because we don't have them, but simply they weren't preserved, you know, and uh, we, they're not in our New Testament. But that's just to give you a sense of what goes on whenever people are trying to piece together the chronology of the New Testament and the work that goes on um, by scholars that they try to really piece together uh, as accurately as possible what's happened uh, and how we've gotten all of these New Testament um, uh, letters and books. And, uh, and that work continues to this day, and it's ongoing. None of this is, is settled and, and done for all time. This work continues in every generation. There's more and more scholarship that goes in to try to work out um, all, of these, uh, all of these puzzles, as it were. But what we do know is that the three synoptic gospels taken together give us a full account that God has preserved for us of the life of Jesus. And the approach I want to take in going through these synoptic gospels is maybe a little bit different. I'm not going to go through and talk about all the parables that Jesus um, that Jesus talked about. I'm not going to talk about all the healing stories, but instead what I want to do is have a bigger picture overview of the life of Jesus. And it's not very often that in church we actually take a step back and we just listen to the life of Jesus, that we just listen to the major events that happened in his life. So what I'm going to do is follow the pattern of kind of combining the three gospels together and first of all, talk about the life of Jesus, like the life story of Jesus, what happened in his life. And then at the end, I'll very quickly kind of show how Mark, Matthew, and Luke have a different emphasis or a different focus in how they tell that story. So if you leave saying, I didn't really hear anything about my favorite healing story or my favorite parable, that's deliberate because what we want to do is take a step back and, and give you the bigger picture story. And we're going to split this into three sections. And uh, before we jump into that, um, this map shows the region that we're talking about, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. These are regions, as you read your New Testament, as you read the Gospels, you're going to be familiar with. And so right down here, we have the Dead Sea. Up here, we have the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem and Bethlehem are right here. So the story of Jesus' birth, you've heard of Bethlehem. It's right there, just below Jerusalem. Um, some other areas as we look at the life of Jesus we're going to be talking about is up here in this region of Galilee. So Galilee was this region right here. And this city right here, Capernaum, is ultimately where Jesus bases most of his ministry. Most of his time in ministry is spent around Capernaum. And then this is Nazareth. And of course, we know that Jesus spent his, his years growing up in Nazareth. That's where Mary and Joseph settled. So as I'm going through and talking about different um, places that Jesus ministered and lived, um, if you can kind of visualize this map in your mind, the big thing is that Jerusalem, Bethlehem are in this region. Uh, Egypt is kind of off to the side down here. And we'll talk about Egypt uh, briefly as well. But then just thinking back that Galilee is this region up here. And Galilee, um, even though this scale right here is just 0 to 20 miles, it's not a very big region for us today, driving in, in cars and, you know, with all of our transportation. But in Jesus' time, you know, these would be significant uh, journeys. And, uh, and, and Jesus would still travel down to Jerusalem. We read a lot, especially towards the end of Jesus' life, of him being in Jerusalem as well. And so, um, and so Jerusalem is where all, everything happened. All the major events would happen in Jerusalem. The temple was there. You know, that's, a, that's obviously a, a major city. Of that, of that time. And look at how far Galilee is away. And so, and so Jesus to grow up in Galilee, you get that sense when you read the, the scriptures of people are like, 
this guy's from Galilee, you know. I don't know what the equivalent would be for us today, but it's, it's almost like, you know, all the action happens in Washington, D.C., and Jesus grew up in Wyoming or something, you know, just really far away and just like where nothing important happens, you know, like that type of sense, so... So we're going to look at the life of Jesus in three different sections, his childhood, his years in ministry, and then the final week of his life. So um, even though our modern-day calendars start with the year 0 AD, and we kind of count everything 0 AD, you know, the year of our Lord, and then, you know, we've used this shorthand BC for everything before Christ, the reality is that the way our calendars have evolved, it's very like, it's most likely Jesus wasn't actually born in 0 AD. So somebody along the line didn't, didn't quite add that up, right? Because it's most likely that Jesus was born around 5 to 7 BC. And so um, they were able to piece that together using the records of when different kings were, were ruling in different regions. And so that would put G the timeline of Jesus' life from about 5 to 7 BC, so right around 30 AD for when um, he would have um, died. And, and so that's kind of the general time frame um, that we're talking about. So we're all familiar with the story of Jesus' birth, right? We just had the Christmas season. And, and what's interesting is only two of the four Gospels actually talk about Jesus' birth. And uh, we draw all of, our, all of our information on Jesus' birth, really, from Matthew and from Luke. And um, the Christmas story, you know, begins with this angelic visitation where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, this young uh, Jewish woman, and announces that she'll become pregnant and give birth to Jesus, who will save his people. And so, uh, you know, we're pretty familiar with this story, and we know that Mary displays this incredible faith in God and believes that this will come true, even though she is a virgin and she's pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. So she knows that if this is going to happen, it's going to be a miracle. And so we read that Mary believes in this and that Mary displays great faith in the message of the angel. Um, Joseph, you remember, decided to uh, put Mary away quietly, as I think the, uh, the older versions of scripture would say, um, to, in as honorably a way as possible, distance himself uh, from Mary, because this was, this for him was something that was going to bring social disgrace, which in this time period was, was about as bad as it would get. You know, this, this, this was not what he had in mind. And you'll remember that, uh, you know, God has to uh, pretty miraculously uh, talk to Joseph, especially in dreams, and convince him that what was happening here was divinely appointed. Um, at the time when it came, so Mary gets pregnant, and at the time of where Jesus is going to be born again, we're familiar with this story, but there's a census that is happening in this region. And the census would happen every once in a while that the Roman authorities wanted to know how many people were there, basically so they could get their tax money. And so this census was hugely unpopular. The people hated it because they knew that, you know, the taxes were most likely going to rise because there was a new census. And what the census required is that um, everybody had to go back to their ancestral homeland. Everybody had to go back to that ancestral region so that they could be properly accounted for. And so that's why uh, we find that Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem, the ancestral homeland of Joseph's family. And so they're in Bethlehem. And you can imagine if everybody, everyone's returning back to their, their hometown, you can imagine how crazy that would be. And, and that's why there's no room for them to find anywhere. And so 
you know, we, reading between the lines, this is a young couple who are, who are not well off. They are far from home, trying to figure out what to do with Mary, who's about to give birth, trying to find just somewhere to spend the night. And it's a, just an incredible story to, to reflect on, just the, how, how desperate they must have been in that moment to find somewhere for Jesus to be born. And um, we, we know from, from, from the history of this time period and just what's known is most likely where Jesus was born was, was a part of a structure where the animals were kept. And so in those days, people would have their living quarters, but then also kind of within their house, they would also have this kind of stable area where they would keep their animals protected, but it was definitely separate from where people, the people would live. And, and that is, that's the only place that they could find for Jesus to be born was somewhere where the animals were kept separate from where the inhabitants of, of that home would have lived. And so Jesus was born, as we know, where the animals were kept, and, and his manger was, and where he was laid was probably a feeding trough. And, and he, was, he was born far from, far from the village where he would grow up. He was born um, in, in a stranger's uh, barn, essentially. And we know that there's lots of other things that happen uh, kind of surrounding that story. And um, it's interesting, uh, kind of the things that are emphasized in Matthew's gospel that are not emphasized in Luke's gospel and, and vice versa. So Matthew tells us this whole story about the, the kings and the star in the east and, you know, their coming and the presence and all of that. And so we're familiar with that part of the story. And, um, and Luke's not really um, too, too interested in that. And he focuses on, on other things. Um, Luke is much more concerned with telling us that whole story of John the Baptist and, and his birth and the kind of the miraculous way that that happened uh, because ultimately John the Baptist and Jesus, their ministries will um, have a lot of um, overlap in the first years of Jesus and the first stage of Jesus' uh, ministry. Um, one thing we do know is that early, very, very early in, in Jesus' childhood, as a result of um, what Mark referenced earlier, but this, this um, desire of Herod to wipe out the, um, the newborn um, sons that have been born to, to the Hebrews, he wanted to make sure that there was no king of the Jews, because of course he heard from the king, kings that had traveled that there was this king of the Jews, and well, Herod was called king of the Jews, and so this was bad news for him, and so he wanted to ensure that there was no uprising and no, no child was going to come and take his throne, and so of course we know that in a dream, God warns, tells Joseph, uh, go to Egypt, and so we know that Jesus, in his earliest years, spent at least some time in Egypt, uh, probably for a period of a few years until Herod dies and his son comes in the throne, and then it's safe for them to come back. And so we don't know exactly if this is true, but it may be that Matthew is telling us this story uh, in order for there to be some parallels with the story of Moses and him being in Egypt. And, 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 and there's always these interesting dynamics in Scripture of the place of Egypt and, and exile and people coming into freedom and just all of these different things that are behind the scenes. And so when you read things like that, it's always interesting to think back and figure out, are the writers deliberately pointing back to these different events that have happened earlier? When they come back from Egypt, they don't settle back in Bethlehem. Remember that's the ancestral home. But instead, they go up to that north region of Galilee, and they settle um, in, in Nazareth. And the Gospels don't really tell us many details about the life of Jesus' childhood, except for a couple of events. One, we have the dedication of Jesus as a baby in the temple. And you remember um, that story where they bring in the offering, and he's dedicated, and uh, you have the very old prophetess, and you have the, the priest, and they're just so excited to have finally met the Messiah, and 
you know, Mary stores these things up in her heart, and you're kind of like, what's going on? And, um, and there's that dedication story. And they were, um, Mary and Joseph were basically fulfilling their obligations under the law to have Jesus dedicated as a Jewish child. The other story that we have is Jesus aged about 12 years old. Remember, they go to Jerusalem for the festival, and there's a big group of them, and they're traveling back, and they suddenly realize, no Jesus, where is he? And so they backtrack, and they go to the temple, and where do they um, go to Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple, and he is discussing matters of, of the religious tradition with the teachers in the temple, and he's amazing them at age 12, and we have that snapshot, and then all we read is that he grew in favor in stature and in favor with God and men. And that's really, that's really about it. However, from other um, accounts that we know of this time period and the things that we're able to piece together through um, history, we can actually fairly accurately predict what Jesus' upbringing would have looked like um, and the types of things that we, he would have done before we see him again appear in public uh, for his ministry. Um, it's it's probably uh, likely that he would have been taught from around age five or six until about age 10 um, in the synagogue. He would have been learning uh, Hebrew and memorizing large chunks of the Old Testament scriptures. And so he would have been spending at least part of his day uh, getting that instruction, getting the instruction um, from the Hebrew teachers and the, and the Old Testament teachers and really learning the Old Testament scriptures. That was common for, uh, for Jewish children growing up, especially uh, Jewish boys. Um, he would have also, in his, in his early years, as a, even as a young boy, have started to learn his father's trade. And this was a time when, you know, you just learned the trade of your father, and you would, you know, continue that trade generation to generation. And we know that um, Joseph was a carpenter. That word also might mean, a, you know, someone who worked with um, masonry or stonework as well. And so, um, so Jesus would have started to learn that even as a fairly young child. He would have begun to, to learn some of those skills uh, from his father. From, um, from age uh, 10 to 12, he would have continued, you know, a, a little bit more rigorous instruction, especially um, at the synagogue. He would have been learning, again, the Old Testament law and just continuing his, um, his understanding in the, in the Jewish traditions. Um, from really from about age 12 until we see Jesus come into ministry around age 30, um, Jesus would have been uh, working with his father, most likely and would have been um, potentially uh, helping to rebuild a nearby city called Sephoris. That was a Greek city that had been destroyed and was being rebuilt. And a lot of, we know that a lot of people from that time period were helping to rebuild that city, so there's potential that Jesus would have helped in the rebuilding of, the city, of that city. But really, Jesus would have been um, learning and working with his father. And he would have also been, uh, as one of the men of the city, he would also have been involved in discussing the politics and the religion and the traditions of that day. And so that was a, just a very typical lifestyle for someone growing up in that time period. And so it's from this, uh, this pattern of, of, of learning the, script, the Old Testament scriptures and being part of his local city and community and learning the trade of his father um, that Jesus um, emerges into ministry. And the gospel writers are very focused on these three years of ministry that Jesus has. They, they're not concerned with the childhood side because they really want to get to the ministry of Jesus. And so when you read the Gospels, it's like, it's like in two of the four Gospels, they didn't even talk about the childhood of Jesus. It's just right into the ministry of Jesus. And the other two, they talk about the, the nativity or what we call the nativity, the story of Jesus' birth. But then right away, within a chapter or two, you're right into the ministry of Jesus. And so that's the second um, stage that we have. 
Now, this is kind of like the public ministry of Jesus. You know, he may have, you know, we don't know in some ways the details of what he was doing before he comes into public ministry, but at age 30, Jesus suddenly emerges on the scene. Jesus comes to John the Baptist, who's been baptizing people um, just in the Jordan River, just outside Jerusalem, and um, he's been baptizing people, and Jesus comes to John the Baptist, and he asks to be baptized. And this is the start of Jesus' public ministry and public life. And uh, you remember that, that incident, that account of Jesus' baptism, where the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and that there's the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, that is a, an amazing incident in itself. Many, many years later, when theologians are trying to look back and reflect on, is there one God? Is there th three gods? What's this whole thing? And trying to piece together this whole idea of the Trinity, this incident is one of the most important incidents and accounts we have in Scripture for the whole uh, concept and idea of the Trinity because it's one very clear idea or, or incident in Scripture where you see all three persons of the Godhead interacting in one moment in time. The term Trinity doesn't appear in our Scriptures at all. It's just a, a term that we've come up with in order to talk about this fact that, there, that God is one in three persons. And this is one very, very important incident for that. That's kind of a that's side note. So immediately after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the wilderness. And he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And again, your mind thinks back to the Old Testament where the people of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. And this number 40 is the number of completion. Very important number in Scripture. And unlike Israel in the Old Testament that was unfaithful to God, Jesus is faithful. And Jesus does not give in to the temptation um, of the enemy. And uh, he is, he's faithful, and he withstands the enemy by quoting, among other things, passages from the Old Testament law of Deuteronomy. So Jesus, after his baptism and his time in the wilderness, moves into ministry um, and begins to, um, uh, to do miracles, teaching, and all, and all of the things that we've become very familiar with that take up most of the gospel uh, writings. And the first miracle we see performed by Jesus is at a wedding in Cana, turning the water into wine. And that's just, a, that's just an interesting first miracle account that we have of Jesus. But Jesus' early ministry was uh, most likely done in the Jordan Valley region, and it would have um, been happening around the same time as John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had a lot of disciples and followers of his own, and some of them went over and decided to follow Jesus because they, were, they wanted to follow Jesus more than John the Baptist. And early, there's these two ministries that are happening kind of side by side. But John the Baptist um, uh, ran into political problems with um, Herod, Herod's son, who was now in, on the throne. And um, he, he, he very sharply criticized uh, Herod's lifestyle and what he was doing. And you might remember the story of Herod, the new Herod, the ruler, uh, ends up arresting John the Baptist and ultimately beheading him. Now this, um, this may have had potential implications for Jesus' ministry had he stayed in that region. And he decided that it was time to move further north and to go up to Galilee in order to make sure that you know, he knew that his ministry was just beginning, and so he needed to, to get up into that northern region. And so he goes back to Galilee, to the area that he knows very, very well that he grew up in. Remember, it's on that northern part of the map. And instead of settling back in Nazareth, remember, a prophet is not respected in his hometown, he goes to Capernaum instead. Now, Capernaum was kind of on that north end of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a strategic location because it was uh, very close to 
to what in the time was a highway, and so it had lots of easy links to get to different places because Jesus obviously did a lot of traveling in this region. And so Jesus was strategic in settling in the region of Capernaum and getting back um, to this fishing village and that's near a, a highway, and it allowed him to, to grow in his ministry kind of a little bit off the radar from all of the action that was happening down in the main city of Jerusalem. Now, as Jesus' popularity grows, we see quickly that large crowds start to follow him. And, um, and from those large crowds that start to follow him, Jesus chooses 12 uh, followers in particular, what we know as the 12 disciples. These are people that he's going to specifically train. He's going to train them. He's going to invest into their lives to the point where they are able to go out and speak and heal and teach in his name. And so as they would go out, they would go in the name of Jesus, and they would do all of the different things that Jesus wanted them to do. And you might remember um, in this period of ministry that Jesus actually does send them out in pairs to go to different towns and villages and to tell them the good news about the kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching, to go with the message of Jesus and to, in a sense, prepare the way for him. And we know that this must have been very successful because as we read the gospel story of Jesus' life, it's everywhere Jesus goes, there's crowds that are there. They're just, they're, they're so hungry to hear what Jesus has to say. And that probably was in part because the disciples had gone out and shared the word about Jesus. And then later, Jesus sends out not just 12, but 72 followers to also kind of do the same thing, the same strategy to go out and to talk about um, who he was. One of the interesting things is that um, Jesus attracts a huge diversity of followers. In the New Testament accounts, in the Gospels, you get this sense that Jesus really um, attracted people what we would consider to be on the margins of society and what the people of that day considered to be on the margins of society. People like tax collectors who were absolutely hated because they represented the rule of Rome. Um, Lepers, adulterers, and other people typically labeled as sinners. And that Jesus attracted these types of people uh, throughout his ministry. Jesus also did, does an incredible job of drawing on everyday images and, um, and just everyday life as he preaches and teaches the people. He talks about food and about money and about farming and all of these things that people would have just been so familiar with in their everyday life as he's communicating his message about the kingdom of God. Um, he's also able to challenge the religious rulers, and Mark, you know, explains some of those religious rulers, the Pharisees in particular, are the major ones that Jesus seems to run into problems with. Um, he's able to challenge their ideas and to really challenge their strict adherence to all of these little rules and, and ways of thinking about God that was so bound up with following the letter of the law. And these things really distracted people from actually being able to connect and worship God. They were so obsessed with following the rules that they didn't even, the relationship side with God was, was completely lacking. So there's a period of Jesus' ministry that is what's kind of the popular phase of his ministry where he was drawing all of these crowds, but there's also a period of his ministry where he's a- attracting fierce criticism. And he drew criticism primarily from these Jewish authorities uh, who were really opposed to Jesus' teaching, but also to his behavior. The Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees would come to Jesus in the gospel stories, and they would basically say that he wasn't living up to the standards that they thought he should be, that Jesus didn't really seem to care as much as they did about what was clean and unclean and what you did on the Sabbath and the food laws and all of those other things. And sometimes they would say to Jesus himself that he wasn't doing what they thought um, they should be doing. That he should be doing, and then also they would say that his disciples were also not following the standards that they should be either, and they were really uh, concerned with all of these purity laws, and so as Jesus' ministry continued to grow, um, there was increasing conflict with these religious authorities, 
And in the background of that tension, we also have the fact that as Jesus continues to minister, more and more people are becoming convinced that there's something unique about him, that there's something unique about Jesus because of the way he teaches, he carries such authority, because he's raising people from the dead, because he's able to walk on water and command storms to cease. Um, We don't get a good sense of this um, because we're not usually so um, familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, but um, in the Old Testament, uh, walking the ability to walk on water and command the weather to um, to change by speaking, those were um, telltale signs that you were divine or had incredibly close to divine abilities. Um, there's a passage in the Old Testament that talks about God, the Father, walking on water. And so when Jesus did that, it wasn't just, wow, Jesus walked on water. That's pretty cool. It's That's a clear sign that Jesus is saying, I am God. And so those are little incidents and insights that we get. One of the most amazing turning points in the story of Jesus' life is the moment that you might remember where he says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Come back to us. You know, and they give all these answers. And Jesus says, who do you think that I am? Who, Who am I? And to us, we're like, well, I mean, why, why would he ask such a strange question? But that's, you know, Jesus is having to really work to let people know that he's the Messiah and that his version of being Messiah is different than what they thought. And you remember the answer that Peter gives, you know, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. That changes everything in the gospel story, in the story of Jesus' life. From that moment, things change, and Jesus begins to talk very clearly that he's on a mission to go to Jerusalem one last time. Um, this whole idea of Jesus being the Messiah is confirmed about a week later to uh, three of the disciples in particular, uh, to Peter, James, and John, as he takes them onto a mountaintop, and there he's transfigured, and the glory of Jesus uh, is displayed to them. And so he's giving them these signs that, you know, you're on the right track. You know that I'm the Messiah. You know that I am unique, and you know that I have come to save Israel. And Jesus begins to talk about this 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 whole idea that he's going to go to Jerusalem one last time. Now, the disciples weren't weren't always as dumb as we think they were, according to the gospel stories, and they knew that that was really important. And Jesus started to say things like, when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. Like, they're going to kill me when I get to Jerusalem. And the the disciples at first, they didn't want to hear that, you know? And they're like, basically, they're just, they're saying, look, we've just figured out you're the Messiah, and we're giving everything to you, and now you're saying you're going to go to Jerusalem and die. And Jesus says this over and over, he repeats it, and, and, and the more he repeats it, the more uh, afraid the disciples get what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. But Jesus is relentless, that he knows he has to go to Jerusalem. It's on the way to Jerusalem that Jesus stops in Bethany and raises Lazarus from the dead, and that uh, pretty famous story that we're familiar with. And, um, and then eventually Jesus does enter into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey to great fanfare, uh, something we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Christ into the city of Jerusalem. And this is where um, the, the gospel writers, again, change um, their, change their um, emphasis. And it's amazing how much of the gospels are focused on just the last week of Jesus' life. And it's as if all the action slows. And this pace that we've been on, we're very little on his childhood, quite a bit on three years in ministry, all comes down into this last week. And they spend a great deal of time talking about this last week that Jesus was in Jerusalem. And so during this week, it's the Passover celebration, and Jews from all over the known world are coming to Jerusalem. And it's, imagine just this huge festival, and just people everywhere, and 
people will be hearing all of these accents from all different parts of the world. It's just all of this hustle and bustle, and everything is just happening in Jerusalem. And it's just, it's like the biggest event of the year is happening in Jerusalem at this time. And we know that Jesus um, goes in at one point during this week, and he turns the tables over in the temple and the money changers, and he talks about, you know, desecrating the temple, and it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And Jesus, during this week, is pretty critical of even the city of Jerusalem and the temple, and says it's all going to be destroyed, and just some very remarkable things that ultimately did come true. The temple and Jerusalem were destroyed in 70 AD. And um, Jesus says things like, this temple will be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. And there's all of these things that Jesus, everything, the pace is quickening, and all of these things are coming to a culmination. And, um, and we know that Jesus um, spends a lot of this week engaging in religious conversation, just really kind of talking against the religious authorities and everything that had been established surrounding the temple that had been, that was so distracting from the reality of what he had come to do. Um, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples in that upper room, and we know that story. And in the midst of the Passover, he takes the bread and wine and says, you know, as this was a celebration of the covenant, uh, what we call the old covenant, because he says in the midst of that that there is a new covenant, and that this bread represents his broken body, and the wine, his shed blood. And this would have been just unbelievable to the disciples. I mean, they would have, what did they do with this? I mean, they wouldn't have, Jesus hasn't hasn't died yet. I mean, this is just incredible. And from there, we know that Jesus goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane, just outside Jerusalem, and he prays in anguish because he knows that this is the time that he will be put to death. And um, the disciples, of course, aren't, aren't there for him. They've fallen asleep instead of praying alongside of him. And we know that um, Judas, the one who betrays him, comes in this moment, finds Jesus, has Jesus arrested, because Judas has managed to, to to kind of collaborate to get Jesus arrested because um, the Jewish authorities see him as one who is blaspheming against God, that they don't accept that he is divine and they don't accept that he's the son of God. And so they are very careful to make sure that they, um, that they arrange a hasty trial for Jesus that involves false witnesses, that involves um, him, Jesus being shuffled from person to person as nobody wants to make the final decision of whether Jesus should be put to death or not. The Jews have to collaborate with the Romans because the Jews didn't have the authority to actually put someone to death, and they needed the Romans to actually carry out that crime for them. And so you've, all of this political intrigue and all of these things are happening right around this time. But ultimately, to the Jews, Jesus was a blasphemer. And to the Romans, Jesus was a political rebel who might cause uproar during this sensitive time of this festival going on in Jerusalem. So ultimately, Pilate, the Roman governor, famously washes his hands of this situation, but he does decide that Jesus should be handed over to the Roman soldiers who torture and crucify Jesus in a shameful and agonizing death while his closest friends and mother look on. Jesus was buried in a tomb uh, that was likely a stone stone bench and hewn out of some, some rock. And he would have been wrapped in loose linen with spices, and the tomb was sealed with a large stone. Now, it's, it's, it's very possible that, um, that not all of the final burial uh, rituals were carried out because the Sabbath was, was coming. Remember, this was on a Friday, and it, it's most likely that the kind of the initial preparation of his body was complete. But then the women, after the Sabbath was complete, were coming back to finish the burial, uh, you know, the burial uh, tradition and make sure that the body was fully taken care of. So imagine their, their shock when they get there on the Sunday morning and the, and the tomb is empty, the stone is rolled back. And it's even more remarkable because the seal was placed over and the Roman soldiers were there. And so 
they are so confused, and we know that the angel was there to tell them that Jesus had risen, and then Jesus himself appears to them, and they mistake him for the gardener, and so again, the story just picks up this pace, where ultimately Jesus appears to the disciples. He appears to over 500 people at once on one occasion, and Jesus actually spends about 40 days after his resurrection uh, appearing to different followers and preparing them for what's next before he ultimately ascends into heaven as his disciples look on. And so that's the timeline of Jesus' life that very much focuses on those final three years of his life, and in particular that last week of his life uh, when he's in Jerusalem, Passover, crucifixion, and the resurrection, and the ascension. Um, Mark's gospel is the earliest of these accounts, and it's also the shortest one that we have. And I just want to very, very quickly, it'll just take a couple of moments to go through each of these three synoptic gospels and tell you their particular emphasis. And then we'll take a break. But Mark's gospel is the shortest and earliest, and it probably dates from around the 50s to the early 60s AD, so about 20, 20 to 30 years after um, Jesus had died. And so, um, uh, this, all of the stories of Jesus would have been um, eyewitness accounts that these uh, gospel writers pulled together, and it would have been stories that were told, and these people this, in this time were very, very good at taking stories and hearing them and memorizing and learning them. So I know sometimes we hear things and you tell someone two minutes later and you don't even quite get it right, but these, in this culture they were very good at passing these stories on with a great deal of accuracy. And um, Mark's gospel is structured in two halves. The first uh, up until from chapter 1 to chapter 8 is the whole lead up to where Jesus is um, basically making the case that he is, or Mark is really making the case that Jesus is the Messiah. In Mark chapter 8 comes that famous passage, the incident we just talked about, where Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter in Mark 8 says, you are the Messiah. The whole story of Mark's gospel changes, and Jesus then begins to explain what type of Messiah he is. And instead of being this triumphant military king, Mark's gospel is very clear that Jesus is a servant king instead of a great military king. And that's really the approach that Mark's gospel takes. Showing that Jesus is the Messiah, the disciples get it, they say he's the Messiah, and then we have this journey to Jerusalem where Jesus is very clear that he is uh, Messiah who has come as a servant king. Mark's audience was probably already somewhat familiar with the story of Jesus, and they were most likely Greek speakers because there's different things that Mark has to explain um, in his gospel that a Jewish reader would have known instinctively. And so it's most likely that they were Gentile uh, readers of this first gospel. Now we back up to Matthew. Um, and uh, Matthew, we know, introduces the New Testament. And why it comes first, even though it's not as, even though it's newer than Mark, it's not chronological, Matthew's gospel comes first because Matthew is like the link that draws from the Old Testament and links into the New Testament because, as you know, you start Matthew's gospel with a genealogy where Matthew's very concerned to show that Jesus is born in the line of Judah all the way back to David, all the way back, you know, and so he's very concerned that we see that connection, writing to a Jewish audience, that we see that connection of Jesus going right back in Jesus' heritage and lineage and tradition, and Matthew's very concerned that we get that. Um, Matthew's gospel, uh, writing to primarily a Jewish audience and telling them again, telling them that Jesus is the Messiah. And he really addresses issues that would have been of relevance to a Jewish audience, especially matters related to the law and to Jewish customs. Um, he's really keen to show how Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies that were in the Old Testament um, about the Messiah who was to come. And another theme in Matthew is that Jesus is king. 
Matthew is very concerned to talk about the kingdom of God coming. Jesus bringing the kingdom of God. And Matthew's gospel um, really emphasizes this idea of kingship. Um, structurally, Matthew's gospel is, at the heart of the gospel, is also um, uh, split up into five sections of teachings. And so you have these five different clear sections of different teachings that Jesus um, teaches. And it may be that Matthew structures it that way deliberately to be somewhat of an echo of the five books of Moses that we have at the start of the Old Testament. And finally, Luke's gospel. And Luke's gospel is actually part one of a two-part story, uh, with part two being the book of Acts. And so we kind of miss that connection sometimes in our New Testament because um, when it was put together, they put John's gospel between Luke and Acts. So... We don't always get that, but they're both written to um, Theophilus, to an individual named Theophilus. We don't really know who he was, um, but uh, he's referred to as the most excellent Theophilus or something along those lines, so he probably was somebody of fairly high standing. And Luke is a doctor. We know that from the book of Acts that he was a companion of Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And Luke took great care to put together this account of the story of Jesus' life, um, using lots of different evidence and, and talking to lots of different people to put this together. Um, Luke's gospel really emphasizes um, the whole idea of salvation and what salvation meant. So the Messiah was to bring salvation uh, to his people. And it's in uh, Luke's gospel that we really get some of the fullness of what that means. And, 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 and he's really uh, careful to unpack that, to show that Jesus brings salvation in the form of healing from disease and liberation from demonic control. He brings life to the dead and he brings forgiveness of sins. So really trying to broaden and expand his reader's understanding of what salvation actually means and all that it means for the followers of Jesus. So that's the story of Jesus' life as we have it in the Gospels. And that's just a very brief idea of how some of these Gospel writers are taking a, a different approach as they um, present the life of Jesus. So we're going to take a break, but in the break, I'd encourage you to, um, to take a few minutes if you want to write down any questions, any comments, any feedback on this first um, session that's looked at the intertestamental period, what led up to Jesus arriving um, in history, and also the life story of Jesus and the Gospels. We'll take about a 10-minute break, and, uh, and then we'll start into looking at John's Gospel, Acts, and some of those other books uh, that John has written in the New Testament. <laughs>